this is the third time we've been in the book of Ephesians, uh, so we had part one, if you will, part two, and we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 11, Ephesians chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Uh, we can put one in your hand. It will be marked for our passage, Ephesians chapter one, and I'll just be reading verses 11 through 14. Ephesians 1, verse 11 through 14, one more Bible over here. Starting with verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you trusted also or you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Let's pray again. Father, thank you again for this time. Thank you for your word. Speak mightily to us, your children. Anyone here doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, today you would draw them unto yourself. If you're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now verses uh, 11 through 14 here, uh, they continue to build on uh, what we had laid out uh, previously in verses 1 through 11, if you're here for part 1 and part 2, uh, and that is that Christ is at the center, would you agree with that? Christ is at the very center of God's redemptive plan. So God had a plan to redeem the world from the curse of sin, to redeem the world from destruction, from certain death. But the redemptive plan, although man didn't know it, Jesus was at the center of it even before Adam and Eve were, were even created. Jesus is at the center of the redemptive plan. Uh, but we've been looking at the fact that we who have trusted in Christ uh, we've been blessed, haven't we, by trusting Christ. We, we've been made blameless. We certainly couldn't do that for ourselves. We've been chosen. We didn't choose ourselves, but we did say yes. We've been chosen. Uh, we've been predestined, the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> we've been adopted. Uh, we were estranged, and the Lord uh, himself adopted us, and that's why Jesus said to pray, our Father, we've been adopted by the Lord. We've been given grace, a lot of grace, immeasurable grace. We've been accepted. Uh, we we're not accepted because we did animal sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament. We were accepted because Jesus himself became the sacrifice. We've been redeemed, uh, our, our sin debt paid for by the Lord. We've been forgiven. You know, it's one thing for you and I to forgive people. But God has forgiven trillions and trillions of sins, forgiven the very people that put him on the cross. But we've been forgiven. We, by the way, helped nail Jesus to the cross, didn't we? We weren't there, but our sins were there. We've been forgiven. We've been given revelation. We've been given understanding of things that will happen in the future. We've been given understanding, revelation of what our faith actually is. We've been given understanding of what the work of the Holy Spirit is, all of these things that God has given us. We've been given the promises of God. And all of this is by the goodness of God, and it says very clearly, for His pleasure. It's, it's a strange thing that God doesn't need anything 
for his, he's self-sustaining. He has, he has no wants, anxieties. Boy, if I only had that. God doesn't have any of that, but that he can create something for himself anyway. It, it may, may, when something for his pleasure, where he doesn't need, you ever have been completely content, and you're not thirsty, you're not hungry, there's not anything you really need, you're very content, and yet someone offers you a beverage you like. And you can enjoy it, but you weren't like, man, if I don't have that, today's not going to be a good day. But you can still enjoy it. You weren't thirsty, you weren't needing it. And God can kind of, this is the best way I can kind of, he can do that for himself anytime he wants. But he doesn't need anything. He's fully sustained, fully content. But yet he does this redemptive work for his pleasure. It pleases him to see transformed lives. As we discussed last week in closing, God delights in saving. God, God doesn't delight the scriptures say he takes no pleasure in the condemnation of the wicked. He does not delight in sending people to hell. People that will say that to you, they don't, they don't know the God of the Bible. They don't know your Savior. They don't know our Heavenly Father. They've never read the scriptures that they had. They've only read little bits of it. He enjoys, he takes delight in saving, in cleansing, in forgiving, in redeeming. And he's planning and preparing, as we ended with last week, a family reunion, an eternal family reunion in his presence for all who will put their faith and trust in him. And I hope that everyone in this room is headed to that family reunion. And I just got back from this wedding Friday night. It, it was nice seeing family. And, you know, really nice spread. Spent way, you know, really good money on all this stuff. And yet it, that would be nothing in heaven be for eternity to gather together. Now, going back to our opening study in Ephesians, there in that city of Ephesus, I just want to take you back for a couple of minutes. There in uh, the city of Ephesus, remember that the Ephesians, they had built for their false goddess, Diana, also called Artemis. Uh, they had built this magnificent temple, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, uh, which was the envy of the world, just an amazing thing. It was much larger uh, than many of the other temples of that day. And, but they had built that temple with their own hands, their own money, their own work. And although it lasted for hundreds of years by 300 AD, uh, we talked about the fact that the Goths had completely destroyed it. It's been gone now. There's just rubble that remains today. And they built the temple but they ultimately built their own religion. So they built the temple, the building, but they also built the religion that was in the building and was actually espoused within the building. But what Paul had brought to Ephesus was different altogether. By the way, if you're taking notes, you, you see the title up there, so you can grab that uh, as well. But what Paul had brought to Ephesus was different altogether. It wasn't what mankind had built, or created, but what Christ had delivered. You understand the difference? The Ephesians had this temple, they had this religion that they built, they crafted, they were very proud of it. It was their identity. It was the identity of Ephesus. Now they had other gods and the people had, they had a pantheism, so they had different gods and people worshipped other things, but what they were known for, their identity, was this temple of Diana, an amazing city, 
fourth or fifth largest city in the world at that time. Four major roads came into Ephesus. So they got a lot of notoriety when people would come and, and go back to wherever they were from and brag about, you got to see what Ephesus has. Their goddess must be amazing. This was their identity. But Paul had brought something that wasn't built by man, but delivered by God. And understand that even though God the Father did in fact have a physical temple built in Jerusalem, we all agree with that, right? Because somebody would say, if you were talking to someone who knows history, they would say, well, what makes, what makes Christianity any better? Didn't, didn't God have a temple built made of stone? There in Jerusalem, yeah, you can still see the western wall is still there, part of it, which uh, today is called the Wailing Wall. They don't call it that in Israel. They just call it the Western Wall. It's referred to sometimes as that, but it's, it's still a remnant of what was the temple. So some would say, well, what makes the religion any different? A temple was built in Jerusalem. A temple was built in Ephesus. Wouldn't they just be both worshiping something, their notion of God? Well, understand that the temple that was built in Jerusalem, it was symbolic, and it was a reminder by God that he had a throne room in heaven. It was symbolic. It was not his dwelling place in the same sense that everyone else would build these temples, and that was where their God would inhabit. This was a reminder that God had a throne in heaven. The throne room that Moses and Isaiah... In Ezekiel, they actually saw elements of this throne room come down into their presence. They saw visible, the, uh, visible representations in, uh, of the throne room of God. The King Solomon, who first built the temple, he was told by God. Solomon was told when he built the temple. He was told specifically by God. You can read about it, First uh, and Second Chronicles all the way through in 2 Chronicles, but uh, he was told that he himself, God said, I will destroy the temple that you're building. I'll completely destroy it if Israel turns to false idols. He was told that from the get-go. If you build this temple, which I'm asking you to build, what I'm authorizing you to build, it's just a symbolic thing. It's a representation of my throne room in heaven, but if, if Israel turns to false God, I'll destroy the temple. And, of course, the return to idolatry did happen. And God sent who? He sent the ancient kingdom of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And Babylon came and destroyed the temple. And then it was later rebuilt when Artaxerxes of Persia allowed a certain number of the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild both the walls and the temple. And it was later rebuilt. And then it was vastly expanded, the temple there in Jerusalem, the second temple, not the one that Solomon built, but the second rebuilt temple was vastly expanded under Herod the Great, because Herod the Great had a huge ego. And he, on the one hand, wanted to build the temple grander than any temple in the world. And by the way, like I said, uh, the ancient temple that Jesus saw, in my mind, is more magnificent than the Temple of Diana. I don't know why it wasn't one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, other than to me, maybe anti-Semitism, because it was unbelievably magnificent in its own right. It certainly belonged in the, in the top seven. Um, but nevertheless, Herod the Great expanded it, both as a favor to the Jewish people 
and also because of his own ego, he loved for people to say, that is the most amazing building that the world has ever seen. So it was greatly expanded under Herod, and this awe-inspiring temple that Jesus visited often in his earthly ministry, Jesus said that one, the one that Jesus saw, the greatest of the temples, Jesus said that temple would be utterly destroyed. Remember, the first one had already been destroyed. But he said that one, the one that he uh, walked in and out of in his three-year ministry, and even prior to that, even when he was a child, that temple, he said, would be completely destroyed. So when Paul writes to the Ephesians, the clock was already ticking on that prophecy. Do you realize this? At this point, the temple that Jesus walked in and out of, the same temple that he taught in just days before the crucifixion, that temple was still there. When Paul's writing the Ephesians, the temple of Diana was there, and the temple down in Jerusalem was there, and the temp both temples would have been world-renowned, magnificent, both in their own right. The temple of Jerusalem was fully intact, and it had thousands of people every Passover that were still going there every single Passover season. But the clock was ticking that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. Because at that time, the temple in Diana was a the temple of Diana was a buzz with activity. The temple in Jerusalem was a buzz with activity. Both of them. Paul wrote the Ephesians. He wrote the Ephesians in the latter years of his life. It was during a two-year prison, um, two-year two, two imprisonment in Rome, which was not his final imprisonment, but it was a two-year imprisonment in Rome around A.D. 62. And he'd have roughly four more years of freedom after that time in prison. He'd have roughly four more years where he would then complete what is known in your Bibles. You have those maps in the back. His fourth missionary journey would come after this two years in prison. So he'd have four more years of freedom. Fourth missionary journey would take place. And then in A.D. 66, you've got to hear this because this is, this is how God controls the chess pieces of time. God, do you believe this? God blow, he moves all the chess pieces of time. In AD 66, Paul is rearrested. He's re-imprisoned in Rome, and by AD 67, Paul is put to death by Nero. AD 67. He's arrested in AD 66. AD 67, he's put to death by Nero. Now the same year that Paul is arrested, A.D. 66, the Jewish revolts begin in Judea and Jerusalem, what was known as the Jewish Wars, Jewish-Roman Wars. They start, it's a four-year war. The Roman Empire suffers some early losses, and the control of the region, they lose control of the region temporarily. But four years later, remember it started, Paul is arrested in A.D. 66, the revolt in Jerusalem starts in AD 66, same year. Three, year, three years later after Paul's death, or four, year, four years after this, uh, three years after his death, four years after his arrest, Rome crushes the rebellion in AD 70. Paul's arrested, revolt start, four years later, Rome crushes the rebellion in AD 70, and on the ninth of the Jewish month of, the ninth of the Jewish month of, Jerusalem falls and the temple is destroyed by the Roman commander Titus, who will later become 
Roman emperor. He wasn't emperor at the time. He was a commander, but he would later become a war hero. He will become the emperor of Rome eventually. The destruction of the temple by the Romans on the 9th of Av is the exact same day that Babylon had destroyed the first temple, also on the 9th of Av, 655 years earlier. Both temples destroyed on the 9th of Av. One by the Babylonians, who God had specifically raised up. One by the Romans, who God had specifically raised up. In both cases, you can read Deuteronomy chapter 28. Moses was told long before, if the children of Israel leave, I will bring a nation from a foreign language to come and destroy. Happened twice. Do you think it's coincidence that the temple was destroyed on both occasions on the 9th of Av? One by Nebuchadnezzar, one by Titus. Now, Jesus had said this would happen, what, 40 years earlier? About, roughly, thereabouts, 30-some, 40 years earlier. Now, Israel, like their forefathers, they had replaced the true worship of God with the religion of themselves. Remember, Paul himself was religious, but he wasn't a follower of, of God. He thought he was but they had replaced the true religion of God and had rejected God's very son. And so God rejected the nation, and God rejected that temple. And what God was saying is, unlike Diana, Diana, this is her temple. God is like, my temple is in heaven. I don't need this building. And if, by the way, God doesn't really, this building here, we'll look at this more in Ephesians, this building is not holy in a sense, although we want to treat it and, and we want it to be sanctified, but the building is just materials. God is spirit. He doesn't need a temple. Diana doesn't exist, right? That's Paul's point when he comes there. He's like, you have a temple. I came from a temple. I came from the Jewish temple. You have the temple of Diana. My God lives in the heavens. Your God isn't a God at all. So they would say, well, your, your temple got destroyed. Yeah, our temple got destroyed. It wasn't because, remember Diana, she, she didn't realize the day that the te first temple, one of the times the temple was destroyed is the day Alexander the Great was born. And one of the Greek historians said, because she was preoccupied with the birth of Alexander the Great, she couldn't keep the temple from being destroyed. Whereas God destroyed his own, he sent the armies to destroy the temple. Big, big difference. And I bring all that up to, to, so you understand a little bit about Ephesus, but also when people say to you, well, what makes the difference between your God and any other God? They had a temple. Israel had a temple. Yeah, they did have a temple. Symbolic. That God said was only to point people to him, not to replace him. Today, religion often, even in Christian circles, the church has replaced God. The ministry has replaced God. And God says, I'll remove, Jesus wrote to the seven churches in, in Ephesus, Ephesus is one of the seven churches, seven churches of Asia. He said, I'll remove your lampstand if you replace me. Right? And so that was happening. So Paul was introducing them to the real, true, and living God. Jesus had said that he was coming, and that, um, or Jesus said that the destruction of the temple was coming. He, he said that 
temple that you're looking at, that magnificent temple. He said this as they were on the Mount of Olives. If you get to go to Israel in 2019, you'll get to see the same exact angle or thereabouts. Uh, right there looking down, he said, that temple, that temple that you guys are amazed at, that'll be gone. Not one stone left on top of another. And the Romans, of course, did this. He said that this would happen, and nobody believed him that it was coming. By the way, he says he's coming back. A lot of people don't believe that either. He was right about the temple, and he's right about his return. But he said that those that um, repented and those that put their faith and trust in him, they became part of him, and that he, in fact, was the temple come down from heaven. Do you know Jesus? Remember he talked about himself? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He wasn't talking about the building because the building was still there three days later. That wouldn't be destroyed till AD 70. He was talking about him. He said, this temple, destroy it in three days, I'll raise it back up. That caused a big stir. This temple took years to build. How are you going to raise it back up? But he was saying that when he raised back up, we would be placed in the temple of his body. And Paul reemphasizes this truth, and very specifically so when we get into Ephesians chapter 2. You'll see, we get into the latter part of chapter 2, he really emphasized that Jesus is the temple. And this is all important because in Ephesus they had all these temples, and Paul is explaining, no, 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 no. God's temple is the body of Christ. It's not Diana's temple. It's not even the magnificent temple that Herod built. Not made with stones or human hands. So what, all, what does all this mean for us? Well, the picture is this. All the things in this world will crumble and fade away. All of them. Someday the pyramids will not be there. They've stood you know, three, 4,000 years. Someday nothing will be left that won't crumble and fade away. The temples, the religions, the idolatries, the world empires. Nobody ever thought the Roman Empire would ever end. Right? Nobody ever thought that in those days. It lasted hundreds of years. All of the uh, exactness and the fullness of God's timing, those chess pieces that I mentioned, all will come, to ha come into place exactly when God says it. Amen? Jesus didn't come a minute sooner in Bethlehem than God planned. It was exactly the right time. His death was exactly the right time. The temple was destroyed in his timing, all of these things. Everything will come to an end. We saw this last week in, in, uh, in verse 10 when it says the dispensations of the fullness of the times, these different times that God has preordained. What will, will remain? What will remain when everything else fades away is the authority and the majesty of Jesus Christ. That he is the church. That he is the temple that will never be destroyed. That the gifts that he's given to his sons and daughters cannot and will not be taken away. Isn't that great to know? You're, you could lose a lot of things in life. I saw a quote uh, recently. Uh, actually, Pastor Matt Chandler in, in Dallas said it, that, um, that uh, people today are inebriated by the stuff of future yard sales. <laughs> Isn't that true? People are completely in love with the stuff of future yard sales. We're having a yard sale April 22nd. We're glad that your junk will help send people to <laughs> Guatemala and El Salvador. Uh, my junk, too. We're like, you know, you buy something. You got it at Pier 1. I'm never going to get rid of this. Seven years later, why did we buy this? <laughs> right? 
This will never go out of style. We, it's, it's, we've proofed it so it won't go out of style. Sure enough, it goes out of style. Hold on to it because that color is coming back in, in 10 more years. Just put it in the attic and put it on the rotation, if you will. But all of these things will fade away. Aren't you glad you've been rescued by a Savior that's paid all of our sins? He's defeated sin and death. And he holds the past. He holds the present. He holds the future in his hands. And he's provided for us what nothing or no one else could ever provide, could ever purchase, or even promise. And this is Paul's joy in reminding and encouraging the Ephesians. I want to, uh, before we finish this morning, I want to just give you three things to remember if you're taking notes. First, it's found in verse 11 here. In him we have also obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Our security. The security of our future and the purpose of our life is secured and kept in Christ. This is what Paul is establishing. This is the most impenetrable vault, Jesus himself. The most impenetrable vault, his holiness, his power, his matchless grace, his authority keeps our inheritance. All of him. There's nothing, there's nothing you could do to say, I'm going to make sure my salvation is secure in heaven that you could personally do, that I could personally do. It has to be him. Any more than you could say, uh, this afternoon, I'm going to take a quick trip to Jupiter. Go ahead and try. We'll be waiting for you, you know? Getting a rocket, you're not going to Jupiter. You have no possibility of pulling this off any more than we could keep our inheritance. In fact, every single thing that we possess of any eternal value, anything that we look forward to in heaven, any bit of righteousness or goodness that comes from our life, any victory in our life, any progress in our life, any success in our spiritual walk, any spiritual gifts we've been given, any fruit in our life, it's all because of Christ. It's all because of Christ. That's why we can't take any credit for anything. And I'm talk, not, not talking about false humility. I'm just saying really understand that it all comes from the Lord, that we really are fortunate that he flows through us. We don't bring anything to the table. We really don't. I, I think it's great that God's given people different personalities and gifts, but God's given those. You have to appreciate that. Twice in verses 11 through 14, and three times starting with verse 7, a verse begins with this phrase, in him. Three times starting verse 7, twice in the passage that we just read, verse 11 through 14. In him. Christ is central to the whole of the book of Ephesians. And as I've mentioned in previous weeks, the doctrinal foundation is found in chapters 1 through 3. The practical is found in verses uh, uh, 4, 5, and 6. Uh, but this phrase, in him, that opens verse 11, verse uh, 7, and verse uh, 13 is all part of Paul's laying the groundwork for the structure of our faith and that of the church. We also see bracketing in verses 7 through 14, as well as 11 through, uh, 11 through 14, uh, the purpose and the result of everything that Christ has done in eternity past, in eternity present, and in the future. And that's this phrase, to the praise of his glory. So in him is the front end of the brackets, 
and to the praise of his glory is the back end. That makes sense? In him, to the praise of his glory. In him, to the praise of his glory. In him, to the praise of his glory. We're not part of that equation, do you see? It's in him and for his glory. Now, he brings us in because of his love. He so loved us and because of his grace, but in him and to the praise of his glory. The work in us and the work in the church flows from Christ, and it's all to the praise of his glory. No one can take his glory. No one can take credit for anything. We get to be a part of all this. We get to be part of his eternal plan. We get to be part of this inheritance. We get to be part of it. Well, we get to be part of it because Christ holds it. Paul saw himself, he saw a great work in Ephesus. He saw people turning to Christ. He saw lives changed. He saw all this, but he couldn't take any credit for it, even though he saw God do a great work. Meanwhile, you know what also Paul saw in Ephesus? He saw in his life a lot of tough times, a lot of trials, a lot of tears, a lot of difficulty. He said that in Ephesus he wept a lot. Paul was human like us. He no doubt had to remind himself, he no doubt had to at times say to himself, well, I am laying up treasure in heaven. You ever said that to yourself? Well, at least I'm laying up treasure in heaven. Because the battles and the setbacks and the scars, he had to remind himself that it was all worth it because he had inheritance waiting. He knew an inheritance was secured for him. Christians don't assume that opposition and difficulty mean you're supposed to change course and find an easier, more comfortable path or a more comfortable ministry. And I've said before, you know that, I mean, I mean some people do, but I don't think anyone in this room is saying, I'm, I'm giving up the kids because it's just too hard. <laughs> right? I'm sending them back to Johnson Willis. Chippenham Hospital, can you guys do something about this? You know. Now, sadly, there's situations around the world where people do give up their kids, but for the most part, most people that I've met that saved or unsaved don't do that, and certainly most Christians should never even think about it. And the same is true in our Christian life. It might be difficult, it might be hard, it might not always be easy. In fact, there will be things that will really rock your world. And yet you have to say, but an inheritance waits for me. There is something beyond. Paul said the sufferings of this world are not to be compared to the future glory. He said that because he saw it often in his own life. The hope of the future, it helps us secure our commitment. If you know for certain that the other side really has something waiting for you, you'll keep pushing towards that point. You'll press towards that goal. Knowing something far better awaits us, it comforts and settles us in the midst of storms. That's how Jesus could sleep in the bottom of the boat when everybody else is freaking out. Because he's like, this isn't even my home. I know where I'm going. It helps us get through doubts. It helps us get through defeat. It helps us get through discouragement. I'll cover a lot of this in the workshop. You've got to come on the 28th if you're interested in that. Theologian Lorraine Botner said, the saints in heaven are happier, but no more secure than are true believers here in this world. No more secure when you know that your inheritance lies with Jesus. 
We have our security. Let's take a look at the next one here, our salvation that Paul talks of. Verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We'll get to the sealing in just a second. The third of the in hymns that opens uh, a verse here. The third of the in hymns. In him you also trusted. It's the second in our text this morning. But our salvation is 100%. It's completely the work of Christ, secured by Christ and kept by Christ. Our salvation, all held in Jesus' nail-scarred hands. If it wasn't for salvation, there'd be no need for us to meet here this morning. None. You could all go back home and read the Richmond Times Dispatch or your mobile phones or whatever else. There'd be no reason to be here this morning. There'd be no reason for the worship team to lead us in song. There'd be no reason for us to fellowship and to open and study God's Word. If there's no salvation, we are really wasting our time. Thank God there is a salvation. We're not wasting our time. We're actually, you know the Bible says? You're right now redeeming the time. Every time you give time to God, He will give you more time. You say, I don't have any time. Start giving more time to God. He will take time. You know he owns time, right? He sits outside time. He is not perplexed by busyness. He multiplies it like fish and loaves to those that will invest it in him. We're redeeming the time right now. But we'd have no hope at all if it wasn't for salvation. Only the hopeless fate of an eternal condemnation and judgment. It's the only thing we'd have to look forward to. The Greek word for trusted found in verse 12 and 13, although uh, the word is omitted sometimes in translations from verse 13, it means to hope before. The Greek word means to hope before. And people have put their hope in so many things that have failed them, things that have never brought peace, things that have never brought relief, things that have never brought forgiveness, things that have never brought the removal of guilt and shame, and people have put their trust, and right now today in 2017, people are still putting their trust in things that will fail them, have failed them, and will continue to fail them. And so did you and I before we came to Christ. I know I did. I look back like, that, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. They're all false hopes. The Word of God is a living hope. The world has a false hope. It's an endless mirage of false hopes. You get to, you never see, you, a mirage, when you get there, it's not actually there. So you see the next mirage, you get to that one, it's not actually there. See the next mirage, you get there, it's still not there. The world is an endless mirage of false hopes repackaged decade after decade, century after century, at least six millennia now. Repackaged, repackaged by the Romans, the Babylonians, the British, right? Wall Street, Madison Avenue. For, year, for years now, Coca-Cola has had the slogan, the real thing. And it really, I, I have to say, a cold Coke in a can, it is legit, right? You know, I mean, compared to if someone tries to give you a Czech soda, you know the difference, Hold on, hold on. This, this is Food Line brand. What, who gave me this? You know, you know that's not a Coke, right? And if you like Coke over Pepsi, you know the difference too. But 
But this is not an advertisement for Coke this morning. <laughs> Salvation through Jesus really is the real thing. It really is the real thing. Go back and look at old advertising. Sometimes you know you look, you come across an old uh, magazine from like 19 Time magazine. You'll see an ad there, and, and you, you, you know, not much has changed. You see a beer ad or something. You see the, the way it's packaged. You look at older music or older books. They're the same false hopes then, just reworded for today and represented. And now they're retweeted and everything else. And the enemy has always tried to malign or cast doubt on the real thing. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, Satan says, Hath God really said? Always casting doubt on the real thing. This is a nonstop drumbeat of the world, nonstop, to say that the false hopes are real and lasting. Now, as I was thinking about this, one thing I noticed about the way the world talks about their false hopes, they talk about them being real or lasting, but they stop short of saying everlasting. They know not to use that word. They can't back that up. Isn't that interesting? You won't see them talk about the word everlasting. They'll say lasting peace, lasting security, lasting this. How about everlasting? Well, oh, no one can do that. Oh, no, someone can. God can. They stop short of that. And yet they call the real thing, or they try and make the real thing as if it's not real. They malign it. They cast doubt on it. They mock it. And it happens imperceptibly, and it also happens overtly. So it happens both ways. Sometimes it's a direct assault. Sometimes it's just very quietly kind of making Christianity look like, oh, who would ever believe that pathetic thing when it's actually the only thing that can save a life? I heard a song playing the other day. I hadn't heard it in years. It was from my senior year in high school, 1987. So for some of you, that's old. For some of you, that's, ah, you're a baby, whatever. <laughs> this was before iPods, before streaming and YouTube and all that stuff. This is back when we had cassette tapes. We had cassettes, you remember? We knew how to use the pen to get that thing, that, <laughs> that tape back in there. And then when it got a crease in it, how to heat it up a little bit to smooth that out, rethread the cassette. And I do remember 8-tracks, for those of you that... But, uh, my older brother's 10 years older than me, so he had the 8-track stuff. But I came along in, eight, in the 80s. We had cassette tapes. We didn't have these tiny devices you could jog with. We had a boom box <laughs> that took up the whole trunk of a car. You know, something like... I was on a basketball team, so I had guys on the team that had these huge boom boxes that you... As a matter of fact... The bigger your box, the cooler you were to carry it. it this <laughs> tiny device was not it, things. So in that respect, marketing has changed. But I hadn't, this, I hadn't heard this song in a long time. It had been years since I had heard the song. It was by Huey Lewis and the News. Remember them? And the song was called Jacob's Ladder. And it climbed all the way to number one. I have no idea. I thought it was a boring song then. But nevertheless, it got to number one on Billboard's Top 100. And the opening line in the song said, I met a fan dancer down in Southside Birmingham. She was running from a fat man selling salvation in his hand. Now he's trying to save me while I'm doing all right the best that I can. And the lines go on, you know, step by step, 
you know, and then it talks about uh, a, a televangelist, you know, send some money and all that stuff. And, and the whole song is about uh, just kind of casting Christianity in this bad light, Bible thumpers, you know, all that kind of, that, that's, the, that's the mentality of the song. And it went to number one, so DJs loved it. Man, the, way, the way the music industry works is what, what gets airtime. They loved it. And why would it resonate? Well, the salvation that Paul speaks of, the salvation the Ephesians believed in, the salvation that caused many there in Ephesus to burn their magic books, change their life. They weren't sold anything. The salvation that had brought peace and life and joy to their hearts had never been sold or offered to them for sale. Paul came and brought it as a free gift from God. Satan used the culture in Paul's day and he uses the culture in our day to mock the real thing, to belittle the real thing, to say, you know, the real thing, you know, you, it's, what a waste of your time. What, what made that song, I was thought more about it, what made that song resonate to people? Well, it had a moral code. I'm doing all right. The best that, all I want from tomorrow is to get it better than today. And by the way, when you get to 10,000 tomorrows, it will matter more than just getting it better than the next day. Because when you get to 10,000 tomorrows, you're in eternity. And you can't just say, well, all I really wanted was tomorrow to be a little better than today. No, what you needed was salvation. This is what Paul's talking about here, salvation. He's not talking about getting it better the next day. You can get it better every day in your life and still not be saved. It's about effort. The song, climbing, right? I'm doing a little better each time. Working my way up to some self, you know, level of goodness. All right, so this is what I consider to be good. By the way, if I wrote a song as a Christian called someone fat in the song, I'd get a firestorm of criticism. But you notice the world can say whatever they want. Anything they want. Doesn't matter at all. I, wrote, I, I wouldn't refer to that in a song or in anything else, but nevertheless, it just gives you an idea that who kind of controls the strings of the world. And then all I want, it, the, other, the other reason the song and, 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 uh, resonated with people is it's all about intention. I'm trying to do good. Do you know when you stand before God, your intention won't matter? Intention is not what God is saying. He's not saying your intention will never get the job done. Jesus got the job done at the cross. And then even, it, it, I, I'm not, I'll readily admit that many have hurt the gospel in the name of Jesus. Wouldn't you? I'm, I'm nauseated by some of the televangelists myself. Many of them, I, I believe, aren't even saved sometimes. You know, so they, they don't represent Jesus. Jesus himself said, many will come in my name, but don't go after them. He said, many will stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, I did this, that. And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. So he himself warned of many false prophets and many false Christians. So they don't even represent us anyway. If they're misrepresenting the gospel, then they very well may have never been changed by the gospel. But, you know, one time I had food poison at a Mexican restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina. Guess what? I've eaten Mexican many times since then. Matter of fact, I love Mexican food. I might even eat it today. I like it that much. <laughs> the food poisoning was not because it was Mexican food. It was a germ or whatever that got into it. 
The gospel is pure, but people will mess up the gospel. Does that make sense? And we apply the same bad logic. That's why there's racism and all these other things. People have one bad experience, and they apply it. That's wrong thinking. The gospel is pure. People mess up the gospel. I could mess up my words or something, but the gospel will never be messed up, and it will always save. And it's not because someone has misrepresented it that makes it not true. Jesus never messed up the gospel, and he never misrepresented it. So as long as we have him to look to, we're in good shape. Amen? Jesus, he has the real thing. All the fool's gold in the world doesn't negate that there actually is real gold. Right? Yeah, there's fool's gold, but there's also real gold. Notice the work of salvation. We've got to wrap this up, but in verse... Uh, in verse 13 here. Notice the work of salvation. One, you heard the word of truth. You heard the word of truth. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let it loose, and it'll defend itself. I don't have to convince people of the Bible. I have to speak the Bible to them. I do not have any power in persuasive words, but the word of God is sharp and powerful. If you quote Scripture to someone and say, hey, here's what the Bible says, they might say, I don't believe that stuff. But as they walk away, the arrow went in. But if you come up with a, a great argument, the arrow doesn't go in. The Word of God is what actually does the work. He says, you heard the word of truth. Number two, he says, the gospel of your salvation. The gospel of your salvation. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is that we're all sinners that we're all facing death, that we can't save ourselves, but that the finished work of Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection is the only hope for our sin and death condition. That's the gospel. It's simple enough for a child to believe it, powerful enough for anyone to be saved by it. I don't even understand how something that simple just radically changes people, but it does. People have tried a million things. They believe on the gospel, and all of a sudden, like the demoniac, they're clothed in their right mind. It's powerful. And then lastly, he says, you believed, having believed. This is the key. You can know all this stuff, but if you don't believe in it, well, then you're no better off. John 5, 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. It all starts with one word, believe. In Ephesus, he says, you have believed, which brings us to our final thing, which he says here in verses 13 and 14. And you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of of the purchased possession to the praise of glory. He says, until you get to heaven, until you die and transfer from earth to heaven with God, you have one mark that God looks and sees you belong to him. That's the seal of the Holy Spirit. I can't see the Holy Spirit, but I can see the work of the Holy Spirit in many of your lives. And hopefully you can see the work of the Spirit in my life. I can't see the Spirit because the Spirit is a spirit. But the seal, God can actually see the seal of the Holy Spirit on us. Isn't it great that he's, been, he's sealed us? 
J.B. Phillips says, every time we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we mean that we believe that there is a living God able and willing to enter human personality and change it. This is how you can tell that someone has been changed and transformed is there's a change. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. And the Holy Spirit does that work. I couldn't have changed myself, and you couldn't change yourself either. Nor could I keep myself in the Lord. I have the Holy Spirit to say, stay, abide. I feel like wandering. Holy Spirit pulls back. I feel like going to, later this year, probably after, sometime after Easter, I'm going to do a three-week study on the Holy Spirit. I just feel the Lord's had put that on my heart a while back. I didn't want to blow up the early study of Ephesians and jump right into it, so I want to get at least a few more studies in, but I do want to do that because I, I want to at least spend three weeks in helping us all understand what is the work of the Holy Spirit because there's different elements of how the Holy Spirit works in us individually, as a church body, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What are tongues? All these different things. And so understanding what do these things mean? How does the Holy Spirit operate in these different areas? But that's for a different time. But as of what Paul's talking about here is, um, and we'll close here. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I just want you to read it with me. Not out loud, but you, um, just want because you have different versions and we'll get all messed up. But uh, there, should, oh, oh, there we go. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, what Paul is speaking here is just the simple fact that those that are saved receive the Holy Spirit. There's, there's no saved person that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. That'd be like saying, you're alive, but you don't have a heart or a brain, right? You don't have a heart or a brain, you're not alive. Not happening. Uh, not even with life support. If those two things are gone but if we are saved, we have the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not of his. Same author, Paul, making it really clear that all who are saved have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean that everyone's been baptized by the Spirit and full immersion, but everyone has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's important because that is our seal until the day of redemption, until the day that we cross from this life into heaven. Amen? Everyone that walks into heaven already has the Holy Spirit living in them, which is a great comfort to us because that reminds us of all the other truths we just read. It's the Holy Spirit that will go back and when you're having that bad day, when you're having things go wrong, the Holy Spirit will remind you and say, you have an inheritance. Oh, yeah. Why would I trade all this for fool's gold? Holy Spirit will say, hey, 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 don't listen to the drumbeat of the world. They always will malign my faith. Don't listen to it. Don't think that that person can't be reached. The Holy Spirit will say, you just go ahead and speak the truth. This truth is powerful. This is what the Holy Spirit does. We have waiting for us an immeasurable gain. We already have received a immeasurable gain, but we have waiting for us an eternity in heaven with Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's a lot to look forward to. Amen? Let's close in prayer.